America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is The Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A uh, great day because the breaking news says that uh, in South Korea, uh, Yoon suk Yeol of the People Power Party has been elected the 20th president of South Korea. Uh, I believe we will check, I'm sure we'll be talking with Gordon Chang about what this means, but I believe it's an earthquake in America's direction because this is the more pro-American, uh, the more realistic about North Korea party that uh, appears, unless I'm misreading this, to uh, have won. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the situation in Ukraine, uh, I just, uh, it, it's, it's very, very tough to speak and to say anything other than what anyone would feel about the bombing in, in a courtyard of a children's hospital with dead kids in Mariupol, uh, Ukraine. It's a city that uh, the Russians already largely control and a children's hospital really with kids the Ukrainians report kids buried in the rubble and how do you justify that if if you're part of this th this uh, Russian evil machine to lie and lie and lie about what is going on. It's one of the reasons that, uh, thank God, we do have here in the United States. Is there media bias? Are there mistakes by journalists? Sure. But compare what we have and what we should treasure here, the ability to speak to people, as I'm speaking to you now, from the heart and my own ideas not controlled by the government, to what they have in Russia. Apparently, they have now a, an official policy where the terms invasion or war are not allowed to exist. The, the de deadline here, the um, report, is uh, that uh, they, th Ukraine accused Russia today of breaking a mutually agreed upon ceasefire to prevent the evacuation of civilians in Mariupol while adding that an airstrike by Russian forces destroyed a children's hospital complex in the same city. A Ukrainian president, Zelensky, said that women and children are trapped in the rubble, and according to local authorities, the number of victims is not yet known. Meanwhile, the U.S., the U.K., and E.U. have all committed to phasing out imports of Russian oil and gas and several global brands, including McDonald's, Coca-Cola, and Starbucks, have agreed to close Russian operations. Uh, what's amazing about this is they ran a picture of when McDonald's first opened up in Russia, and it was a sensation. Russian people went nuts over McDonald's. Apparently, to get into the first McDonald's, you had to wait in line for like 30 hours. There were lines around the block in Moscow. And uh, now McDonald's closing, uh, but they are taking special steps to 
protect some 60,000 employees they have in Russia and, and make sure they get at least something? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> now Russia has become – it's very clever, Jeremy. This is – it's uh, 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 actually it's uh, Jeremy's dad who apparently came up with this is um, apparently now Russia is a no-fry zone. But um bum uh, th- this entire matter, is it the beginning of a new Cold War? Elliot Abrams says so. He is a uh, former State Department official, former Reagan and Bush advisor, and uh, a wonderful writer about foreign affairs. He's written one of the best things I have read so far about the future, uh, which um, he did for the Council on Foreign Relations. And we're going to be speaking with Elliot Abrams coming up. We'll also be speaking about the future of the U.S. economy. And is it possible to fight Russia through sanctions, particularly sanctions on any imported Russian energy products? Is it possible to do that at the same time that you're fighting inflation? And how do you do it? We'll be speaking to uh, New York Times economist Peter Coy coming up. And also uh, to Jessica Pisano, who wrote this powerful piece in um, Politico about why it is that Putin, who has been planning this kind of attack literally for years and years, didn't attack during the Trump administration. Why not invade during the Trump administration? I mean, supposedly, at least there was a, a good relationship between uh, Putin and uh, Trump. And so maybe he could have gotten away with it. So why no attack at that time? We will get to that as well on the Michael Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. Yesterday, there was testimony for the House Intelligence Committee And uh, the testimony by Avril Haines, who was our director of national intelligence, was extremely informative, and I do think every American should hear some of it. Uh, There was a basic question about what people are acknowledging around the world, everywhere except Russia, of course, where it's against the law to acknowledge it. Putin made a gigantic mistake in invading Ukraine. And what was the nature of the mistake? This is Avril Haines. Listen. Clip 19A. Russia's failure to rapidly seize Kyiv and overwhelm Ukrainian forces has deprived Moscow of the quick military victory that probably had originally expected would prevent the United States and NATO from being able to provide meaningful military aid to Ukraine. Moreover, we assess Moscow underestimated the strength of Ukraine's resistance and the degree of internal military challenges we are observing, which include an ill-constructed plan, morale issues, and considerable logistical issues. What is unclear at this stage is whether Russia will continue to pursue a maximalist plan to capture all or most of Ukraine, which we assess would require more resources, even as the Russian military has begun to loosen its rules of engagements to achieve their military objectives. And if they pursue the maximalist plan, we judge it will be especially challenging for the Russians to hold and control Ukrainian territory and install a sustainable pro-Russian regime in Kyiv in the face of what we assess is likely to be a persistent and significant insurgency. 
And uh, by the way, when you talk about some of these morale problems, um, late last night I was hearing a broadcast on BBC which was reporting that they have documented cases of uh, people I, – I, you've probably heard that there's several hundred tanks apparently that have been uh, totaled or decommissioned. And, and apparently they have several cases of Russian troops getting out of their tanks and, and blowing them up or damaging them or personnel carriers as well. And because, again, it's, it's pretty easy when you're surrounded by, even with 2 million people having left the country, there's still 42 million Ukrainians. And the big, huge mistake that, that Putin made, obviously, was that belief that those Ukrainians would welcome Russians with open arms and with flowers. And I know there are people who are going to say, well, we believe the same thing about Iraq, and that wasn't true. Yeah, but there there were some people in Iraq who uh, who welcomed uh, the United States and our allies as liberators. There's almost nothing, and we would certainly have heard about it. They would have broadcast around the world the Russians. Which city, which district in Ukraine have they invaded where they're being treated as liberators? It's not happening. Uh, what is happening is Zelensky speaking to the House of Commons. Historic. We'll get to that coming up on the Medved Show. is good news. I mean, part of the good news is the stock market's up uh, 700 points. Who knows why this stuff happens? We'll be seeing with Peter Coy about that. But it's up 700 points. I am sure that part of it, I am sure that part of it is the news from South Korea, where my initial response is now confirmed ABC News. South Korea elected Yoon Suk-yeol of the conservative, they describe it, People Power Party. It's conservative, it's pro-American, and it is more determined uh, to not kowtow and to stand strong against North Korea. They chose uh, Yoon as the 20th president of South Korea today. He claimed victory in a tight vase against uh, Lee Jae-myung of the ruling Democratic Party. That's that President Moon who has been uh, more troublesome as an ally than, uh, than what we are going to have now. Uh, the uh, newly elected president, this is... And the, the other thing that I'm sure we'll all be reading about is at this moment to align yourself with the bad guys of, of the world, uh, with Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping and, uh, and Kim Jong-un, to be aligned with them in any way is not a good political position. Uh, the world, to some extent, is coming together. I mean, especially this news about uh, the, the children's hospital being shelled in the midst of a, a, a so-called ceasefire to allow people, struggling old people, to, to get out of harm's way in Ukraine. I mean, the entire 
situation is horrible. The uh, newly elected president of South Korea uh, said, I learned a lot while carrying out the campaign, what is needed to be a leader of a country, how to listen carefully to the people. This election process and competition are for all the people. Election is over now, and we need to be all one for the people in our Republic of Korea, he said. His supporters cheered and chanted, regime change, regime change, which I'm sure sounds better in Korean. Uh, Wall Street rallied Wednesday with the three major U.S. stock indexes surging while oil prices posted double-digit declines. Dow Jones Industrial Average up about 800 points, or 2.4%. In early afternoon trading, the broader S&P 500 index advanced 2.8%. And the tech has a NASDAQ, the biggest gain of all, 3.6%. Stock rally comes as oil prices retreated from recent surges. Uh, that's good. And this testimony which was just very frank and direct. And I think that Averill, Averill Haynes, the uh, new director of national intelligence, seems to be competent and a straight talker. And uh, Haynes said that Putin likely expected the conflict to last days at most. And she predicted Russia would be hard-pressed to hold any grounded gains. Uh, we assess Putin feels aggrieved the West does not give him proper deference and perceives this as a war he cannot afford to lose. But what he might be willing to accept is as a victory uh, may change over time, given the significant costs he is incurring. A CIA director, William Burns, testifying the same hearings in the House Intelligence Committee, said that um, Putin initially believed Ukraine was weakened and easily intimidated and that the Russian leader had modernized his military to the point of ensuring a quick victory. Burns added that Putin had been confident early on that he had sanction-proofed his economy and that the Europeans were too distracted to pay much attention to the invasion. He has been proven wrong on every count. But that doesn't mean there isn't a human toll, and a grim human toll. This is Averill Haynes, our Director of National Intelligence, testifying yesterday before the... Uh, House Intelligence Committee, clip 19. And of course, the human toll of the conflict is already considerable and only increasing. Thus far, the Russian and Ukrainian militaries have probably suffered thousands of casualties along with numerous civilian deaths. And of course, well more than a million people have fled Ukraine since Russia invaded. Moreover, Russian forces are at the very least operating with reckless disregard for the safety of non-combatants as Russian units launch artillery and airstrikes into urban areas as they have done in cities across Ukraine and near critical infrastructures such as the Enerhodar nuclear plant. And the IC is engaged across the interagency to document and hold Russia and Russian actors accountable for their actions. And these are war crimes. And uh, some of those war crimes were addressed yesterday. There was a history-making. Never before had the Houses of Parliament been addressed by someone on Zoom or through the internet. But for Vladimir Zelensky, the heroic president of Ukraine, uh, he spoke via satellite and channeled his inner Churchill. Uh, listen through the translator. This is clip four. I would like to remind you the words that the United Kingdom have already heard 
which are important again. We will not give up and we will not lose. We will fight till the end at sea, in the air. We will continue fighting for our land, whatever the cost. We will fight in the forests, in the fields, on the shores, in the streets. I would like to add that we will fight uh, on the on the banks of different rivers like Dnipa, and we will. We are looking for your help, for the help of the civilized countries. If that uh, doesn't sound familiar, maybe this will bring back uh, some of the echoes. Uh, this is a speech from 1940. Uh, listen, clip five. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And uh, that's what uh, he said, the translator use the term give up. We will never give up. Uh, we will never lose. But uh, Zelensky, apparently, I don't know Ukrainian at all, but apparently he said we will never surrender. And deliberately trying to echo uh, Churchill to to the House of Commons. Uh, okay, we're in an uncommon time. And it is a time of... Uh, surprising unity by the alliance but are we in the midst of a the beginning stages of a second cold war uh, Elliot Abrams who has says we need to prepare for that very real possibility but there are some differences uh, this time between what we faced starting in 1945 at the end of the hot war of World War II We'll be talking about the new Cold War with uh, former foreign policy advisor and administrator Elliot Abrams coming up on The Michael Medved Show. The greatest show on God's green earth. It's deeply distressing to me. The Michael Medved Show. What I'm hearing is not only offensive and shameful, it's dangerous, counterproductive. Michael Medved show. Uh, very glad to um, to speak to Elliot Abrams, who has uh, just written, I, I believe, one of the most powerful, germane and persuasive pieces about what the future holds. Uh, now that we are on the midst of what he designates as the new Cold War. Elliot Abrams is a senior fellow for uh, Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington, D.C. He served as a deputy assistant to the president and deputy national security advisor in the administration of George W. Bush. And uh, in the Trump administration, he served as special representative for Iran and Venezuela, two deeply troubled countries. Uh, in the administration of Donald Trump. His piece appears uh, in the Journal of the Council on Foreign Relations and in on National Review. Uh, Elliot, again, glad to speak to you, not 
so happy about the circumstances, but uh, what you write here to get people's attention at the very beginning is the coming decades may resemble the 1930s more than any other period since. Whether they lead to a peaceful contest or a conflict that tests the nation as much as or more than did the Second World War is the awful question we now face. We're not ready militarily, politically, or psychologically for the prolonged crisis ahead of us. Well, with, with that, what is the most striking feature, you believe, of our unreadiness right now? Um, delighted to be on and to be talking with you even about these grim subjects. <clears throat> most striking figure is probably that we are not spending enough money on our national defense. When John Kennedy came to the presidency, we were spending 9% of GDP on defense. It's now under 4, uh, which is why our Navy is too small, our Air Force has too many old planes, Army is not large enough. Um, so I would say that's the single thing that worries me most. And do you make the point that uh, in both World War I and World War II, uh, though it took us a while to get involved in those wars, but we had the, both the economic and the military might that could be quickly built up to have a decisive effect. Uh, right now, uh, facing potentially two very major uh, autocratic threats in, in Russia and in China, we don't have that same cushion, certainly not when we're spending less than 4% of our GDP on national defense. That's right. Uh, you know, you can go back and read what people like Churchill said in World War II. <clears throat> they knew uh, after Pearl Harbor, when the United States entered the war and then Hitler declared war on the U.S., they knew the outcome of the war was absolutely not in doubt. Just a matter of time. Um, that's not really true now. If you think of a possible um, Russian-Chinese Russian uh, partnership and the massive amounts of money that China is spending building its military, uh, we really have to worry about this. It's a little bit, I said in the article, a little bit like what would have happened in World War II if Hitler had had Russia on his side uh, and Japan? Uh, that would have been a different war, um, though we would have won it. It would have been a different war. Uh, now, you know, facing, we see the Russian military is not what it was cracked up to be, but he has spent a lot of money. Putin spent a lot of money on it. Uh, and the Chinese are really, you know, the, the great challenge for us of the 21st century, which is why I think we need to pay much more attention to defense than we have. Certainly in the last 30 years, you know, we've been kind of floating in a way <clears throat> since the end of the Cold War. Yes, we had Afghanistan. Yes, we had Iraq. Yes, we had the war on terrorism. But those were not national security threats the way China is. And right now, with the the horrors from Ukraine increasing with a bombing of a children's hospital today mm. and the refugees uh, having topped 1.5 million officially in, in 10 days, uh, do, you, do you believe that uh, a 
occupation of Ukraine by Putin and the installation of some puppet government, do you believe that is inevitable? I think it's very likely. Unless we step up the military help to Ukraine, more than I think um, is likely. I think Putin ultimately has the capacity to win that war. But, you know, we want to do there what, what we did in Afghanistan to the Soviets. Uh, the Ukrainians are willing to fight. They are fighting. And if we uh, keep that fuel, that is, if we keep the supplies flowing to them, you know, the javelins and the stingers and uh, everything else, uh, they'll continue to fight. And that is what we should be doing, you know, partly because we want to help the Ukrainians, um, partly because if this becomes a steady drain on Russia, it increases the chances that either the military or the intelligence services will get rid of Putin, and partly because it's a lesson to China about Taiwan. Don't think that's going to be easy. So all of this, I think, suggests even if Putin does take Kyiv and puts in a puppet government, we keep fueling this fight. That's the best thing we can do. And we do not, of course, ever recognize that puppet government. We recognize instead a government in exile. And uh, one hopes that uh, uh, the leader of, of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, is, can uh, escape uh, if, if that happens. Uh, uh, do you think there is any chance that things could go the other way, that the Putin regime uh, either falls apart or he's forced by his generals? Uh, one of the major generals, Gerasimov, he, he's dead, isn't he? Didn't he die in some of the early fighting? Yeah, they did lose a, a high-ranking general. Um, I think it's possible. I really do. Um, you know, losing a war, and in a certain sense, they are losing this war. It's nothing like what was expected, and thousands of Russian soldiers have been killed. We also know it was amazing. Putin said no conscripts are fighting for Russia. And then his own defense ministry released the fact that conscripts are dying. And there is some information that the FSB, the, the spies, have actually released a little bit of information to Ukraine about what's going on. So there, you know, there are reasons to believe there are a lot of very unhappy people in Russia, including at the top. And if we keep them unhappy, we keep these sanctions on, and we help the Ukrainians to continue fighting, there is a chance of Putin being kicked out. Uh, can you stay with us for a moment more? So I, I, I because I want to speak what you talk about in your very important piece, The New Cold War. You talk about the need for political change here in the United States, yeah, uh, which, sure. uh, which we will get to. But I, I want to be very clear on this. Uh, uh, Putin apparently said uh, within the last 24 hours that they have never in the course of this war uh, done damage to civilian targets. Uh, so I think you, you're saying that may not be true? Uh, <laughs> we're talking about Vladimir Putin. He's a liar. Um, there's a lot of evidence today, obviously, that it's true. We also know that the Russian military isn't a crack force. So it's perfectly plausible that even if they didn't want to, they would hit civilian targets. But it doesn't seem uh, that they're trying to avoid that. 
We will be right back with Elliot Abrams on the new Cold War. And really, the piece also talks about how to win it. We'll be right back on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. This is The Michael Medved Show. historian, uh, thinker, foreign policy veteran of the uh, Bush administration and the Trump administration, and uh, someone who has been a significant voice in foreign policy since the Reagan era and helped to win the first Cold War, now says we are facing a new Cold War. And he writes, when Roosevelt faced the Nazi threat and when Truman faced the Soviets, they were smart enough to seek some form of bipartisan cooperation. And they got it from Republicans who put country over party when it came to national security. President Biden should now consider whether there are any steps he can take to overcome on national security issues, at least some of the deep and bitter partisanship that marks our politics today. Uh, Realistically... This will not mean multiple Republicans, multiple Republicans in his cabinet. That was what Roosevelt did with the Secretary of War and the Secretary of the Navy. Um, what? Why not? Why would it not be a a good move for President Biden to bring in some Republican <clears throat> voices with his cabinet and, frankly, his inner circle? Well, uh, it, it would be a good move. Uh, I think the partisan bitterness suggests that that it may be a very hard thing to do. Uh, you know, those, there was a long period of time when we always had one guy from the other party in the cabinet. I mean, George W. Bush did it, um, but uh, maybe we're beyond that. Even if you can't do that, though, this is really striking about the State of the Union message. There was nothing like this. Um, there could have been some outreach in that speech, and there wasn't. Uh, and they're, they're, they haven't even done the symbolic things. You know, you call in Henry Kissinger, you call in George Bush, or if, if you want to see more balance, Bush and, you know, Bush and Obama. Just symbolic. But he hasn't done anything. He seems to think he's got this great, fantastic team. And as I said in the article, I don't, I don't think the American people agree with that view, that this is such a fantastic team. Well, maybe he gets the message after November uh, where mm-hmm. this fantastic team may have a tough election. But um, I what, guess right. what, 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 what you suggest is that uh, there also needs to be a better effort on the part of Republicans. And you say that uh, some Republicans have been irresponsible in the yeah. um, face of the crisis. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think, writes um, uh, uh, positively enough about President Putin that she could be auditioning for a job with RT when they ever get that back on the air. Um, What else could Republicans do right now as an opposition party 
to uh, more than they are doing so far to help with this effort of uh, a unified front against Russian aggression? <clears throat> well, one thing is to offer advice. And there, I think, if you look at what Senator McConnell, a Republican leader in the Senate, has been doing, he's made a series of very, I think, wise, serious speeches uh, and, and has offered uh, bipartisanship on national security. I, you know, we have not heard that, frankly, from from President Trump, uh, but we have heard it from some people on the Hill. I'd like to see maybe McCarthy and McConnell, the two leaders in in Congress, in a sense, make a more formal offer of, of bipartisan cooperation on Ukraine and on foreign policy issues, uh, even just so that nobody can say they never offered on their part. Um, but, but you know, really, the president, we have one president at a time, so he ought to be the one reaching his hand out first. And he has not done it. Well, speaking of uh, unity and trying to achieve unity, one of the things that people ask me about all the time, and it's a complicated explanation, I bet you can do it more directly, which is what's with Israel? And, uh, yep. again, you would think that no country on earth would be more horrified at what's going on in Ukraine than than Israel. So many Israelis, people of uh, Ukrainian origin, and uh, why why has Israel tried so hard to quote avoid taking sides when this is, a, a, as you point out in your piece, this is a question of right and wrong. Well. Uh, I think it, I think we can explain it, and that is the terrible decisions made uh, first by the Obama administration, uh, then a little bit by the Trump administration, now by Biden. That is, starting with Obama, we said, well, we're getting out of the Middle East. What did Obama do in Syria, which is where the Israelis have the most trouble with Russia? What he did was to set a remember the red line about the use of gas, and then he walked away from his own red line and let Iran become a much more dominant power in Syria. Um, and so the Israelis have had to work with Russia on trying to uh, protect themselves in Syria, because they're constantly bombing Syria uh, to bomb sites that, you know, and weaponry that uh, Iran is trying to put in there. Uh, then you get um, steps in the Gulf where, you know, Saudi Arabia was hit, really by Iran and the Houthis, and what was the American reaction? Nothing. Nothing. So what the Israelis are doing is actually close to what the Emiratis and the Saudis are doing, which is they're beginning to wonder about the willingness of the United States to stay in the Middle East with its allies. Um, so they've, you know, they voted with us in the General Assembly. Uh, they're sending humanitarian aid. Um, but They've got a huge problem in Syria now, which is the Iranian effort to take over Syria the way it has taken over Lebanon with Hezbollah. And so they are bombing Syria literally every week, sites in Syria. And to do that, <clears throat> they need actually to work with Russia because, starting with Barack Obama, the Russians now have a huge military presence again in Syria. So in a certain way, you know, who, who set the conditions where the Israelis 
have got to work with the Russians as well as us. We did. We did, starting with, the Ob- with Obama's abandonment of Syria. And, uh, look, and it, it all is complicated. I know that they're taking uh, multiple refugees, uh, most of whom are not Jewish, by the way, at least according to the New York Times, uh, into Israel. They're assembling in places like Moldova, some of the refugees who go out, because that's a problem with um, 1.5 million refugees. What um, uh, Do you believe that there is a chance for some kind of settlement? People keep talking about some kind of compromise that leaves this Ukrainian government in power and does not give Putin what he wants, which is the decapitation of this regime? I don't. I think there was in the beginning, you know, in the first few days, when there hadn't been so much damage done, so many people killed, I think maybe there was a deal where the Ukrainians would say, well, we really would like to join the EU now, but NATO, you know, that's way off. We won't even talk about that now. I think that's gone uh, because of the martyring of Ukraine. So I don't think such a deal is possible. I think Putin now needs, from his point of view, he needs this victory of uh, decapitating uh, Ukraine. And the Ukrainians, I think, are not going to do that deal now. Too much damage has been done. Too many Ukrainians killed. million and a half or two million refugees. I think uh, they're going to fight it out. So to me, the only way this stops overnight is if Putin gets kicked out. And we have to certainly hope and pray for that. But short of that, uh, I think the fight continues and as I you're, said you're before, fairly, you're I fairly hopeful you're fairly hopeful I take it from what you're saying Elliot that uh, um, when you say you hope and pray that Putin gets kicked out what about that prospect that he resorts to a nuclear option uh, before he leaves or goes through the uh, door it, that option exists it's a real-world uh, danger but there's also you know a question in my mind On the day that Vladimir Putin starts talking about really doing it and tells his military to do it, maybe that's the day that the Russian military says, okay, he's nuts, and we need to get rid of him. Again, maybe too hopeful, and the danger is there. It's great to to have to place your hope and security for the future in a bunch of Russian generals. Um, Speaking to Elliot Abrams, who uh, looks at the hard questions on foreign policy, will link his piece about the new Cold War to our website. It's very important and in some ways very inspiring reading, reminding us of what we've achieved in the past to make us and help us remain the greatest nation on God's green earth.